0: Hey everyone, back again. Now we're into part two of Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan, and this this part's actually going to look at the Commonwealth. It's called Of the Commonwealth. We've just wrapped up part one, dealing with humans, titled Of Man, and now we're in part two of the Commonwealth. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. Go check out part ones and two. Parts ones and two. If you haven't already, because you should have. What are you doing here if you haven't Uh, if you have and you're here and you haven't yet like share subscribe tell your friends They might get a kick out of it. Follow me on other things if you want to Uh, and yeah, why don't we jump right into it? Now we are starting with chapter 17, which is the beginning of part two titled of the causes generation definition of a Commonwealth So people pursue commonwealths as a sign of restraint on their liberty or as just an example of restraint, on their liberty to leave the state of nature, to leave the state of war, and to more easily exercise their remaining liberties. So by entering into a commonwealth, people agree to give up all of their liberties. Because when you live in the state of war, when you live in nature, for Hobbes, you have all the liberties in the world. You can do whatever you want. But that also means that you're vulnerable to other people attacking you and taking your stuff. So people enter into a commonwealth because that allows them to do all of the other things they want to do, all of their remaining things, in safety and in peace, which is much better than always being scared that someone is going to hurt you or steal your stuff. In short, it is to submit to a power that you expect that you give the responsibility for to, to keep order, to make sure that if someone does something to you, they're going to be held accountable. And one of the things about this, like Hobbes and then Locke, similarly, is like they have such a naive idea about how well justice actually works, like the justice that they're describing. Like people break laws all the time. People commit murder and thievery all the time and are never caught, yet people still submit to this system. So I wonder what else is really going on that they don't really consider Uh, because people are like clearly they submit to this for more reasons than just because there's this higher order in the form of a sovereign, the state that's going to protect you because people are, you know, are they really that protected? Hard to say the commonwealth essentially frees people from the state of war and the state of competition to grow develop and build community together and this is the leviathan as we said in the last in the really the first episode that is in his words it is the mortal god to which we owe under the immortal god that is the real god our peace and defense it is ruled by sovereign where everyone else is their subject. So the Leviathan is an artificial God, it is the mortal one, the one that we've created, to live under the true real God, and then we live under the Leviathan, within the Leviathan. So there's God, there's the artificial God of the Leviathan, and then there's us, the subjects. So commonwealths emerge two ways. Roughly, like mean, not roughly, there's two ways. There's either natural, the natural way, the natural establishment of a commonwealth, or there's the political one. A natural commonwealth refers to the kind of commonwealth or the kind of sovereign type figures that arrive when you enter the world in the form of your parents, or that are there when you enter the world in the form of your parents. The family unit, then, for Hobbes, is the first commonwealth that we enter, because we have to submit to our parents' rule and their, their rules. And we'll we'll get more of this when we get to Locke as well. Uh, but that is like the first commonwealth that we enter. They give us the rules, or uh, they give us all of the like all of the other orders that we need to follow. Now. This is an example of a natural submission or natural adoption of a commonwealth. Another example of this is like in the case where there are prisoners of war who are forced to adopt to a new commonwealth. Oh, excuse the car. I I hate loud cars. I hate loud cars. With a burning passion, it's like one of my biggest pet peeves. So, where was I? The other form of natural adoption or submission to a commonwealth is in the case of a prisoner of war who's forced to adopt the victors, or their, their, whoever conquered them, their commonwealth, their rule, and everything like that. Now, on the other side of the coin, we have the political commonwealth. And this refers to the instance of people consenting to be ruled. People who are like, garsh, wouldn't it be better if we lived in a society where people would follow rules, yada, 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 because apparently the state of nature is pure chaos and, and all that. But I might ask, I might ask of our lovely Thomas Hobbes, how would people have actually gotten together in such a way and said this would be the best way to do things? As though the state precedes itself. Because he's saying that the state emerges when people have come together and they've consented. They're like, okay, it would actually be better for us to live in a state. But such a conversation could only happen if everyone had already laid down their arms and were existing in a state, or they could establish pacts and covenants and all of that. So what comes first, right? And the thing is that at the time, Hobbes had no real understanding of early states and people actually entering into states because as of now we still have no idea he you know he just points to the bible and he's like all the answers are here but of course that's not there's no answers there uh, for this stuff so like i mean what actually happened what actually happened here for if you want more on this read um from a thousand plateaus de los and thousand plateaus there's um oh god the The chapter on the apparatus of capture. I've done an episode on it with a my buddy Curtis, who's wicked smart on that topic. If you want to just listen to that, before the audio quality <laughs> was better, but it's still it's still listenable. Uh, yeah, go check that out if if you if you want. In any case, there David goes again, making problems with things. So. Natural commonwealth, we don't agree to. You know, you're born into a family, you have to adopt it. Or you are forced to adopt one because you have been vanquished in war. And then there's the political commonwealth that you adopt because you choose to. The first refers to the commonwealth of acquisition. It is a commonwealth that has been essentially acquired. Whereas the other one, the political one, refers to a commonwealth by institution. This one we agree to. And that puts us here into chapter 18, of the rights of sovereigns by institution. So here he's elaborating just on the second one. Here he's focusing on examples or instances where people have willingly submitted to and consented to sovereign rule. So he, here he's elaborating on that. So here people consent through voting to be led by a single person or a group. So once people have consented, they can't just form their own commonwealth against their rulers' interests and power. Hobbes is pretty much like, once people consent to being part of a commonwealth, that's it. Like, they have to submit to all the rules. Like, at that point, everything the sovereign says, whether the sovereign is a monarch, whether they're democratically elected, whether they're an aristocracy, whatever they are, Hobbes is like, So long as people have consented to it, everything the ruler says or the sovereign says goes. That's the rules. So the sovereign is in covenant with all of their subjects, not with each one individually. Because if they were, then it would just be like an individual, it'd be like the state of war, it'd be chaos. Sovereign can't emerge from individual covenant as their allegiance is to the whole body of which they are a leader. But, the, you know, there's so many questions about this. Like, what if you're born into it and you don't like the world you're born into? Yeah, you can just leave. But what if the, I mean, maybe I'm just, I'm just, maybe I'm kind of more of a Socrates in this kind of moment. Like, what if your rulers are just wrong? You know, what if they're just bad people? You know, what about that? Uh, anyone who dissents, who opposes sovereign rule, uh, they 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 must just consent with the rest. Like they, they can't, they simply can't. Because subjects are ultimately sovereign's authors, sovereign actions can do no injury to them that they may protest. So like for Hobbes, once a sovereign has been put in place, it according to Hobbes, that sovereign will never injure the people who they are ruler, a ruler of. And if they did, of course, then that would be bad for Hobbes. But they won't because they are set up with people in mind, of which they were a part. Like they were among those people and they, they were elected or they, they are the one who are going to represent all of those people. At least this is, this is his way of thinking about it. So no sovereign can be put to death by their subjects. The sovereign ultimately decides basic doctrines, rules, laws, everything like that who examines them, and what is good and evil. The sovereign decides who the judges are and everything like that. The sovereign consecrates the rules, the laws. The sovereign exercises right of judicature, that is of hearing, deciding all controversies. The sovereign has right to make war or peace with other nations and, and know to organize and fund the military and how to organize and fund the military. The sovereign is also responsible for the hire of all ministers, magistrate uh, officers, and other public and political figures. Sovereign has the power to reward or punish according to law. And finally, the sovereign decides order of their subjects and who will hold what honor and titles. And it's like the sovereign, because you know we said earlier that there was the natural commonwealth, like a family, in that case, then, the sovereign is a sovereign of, has two bodies, because they belong to a family. Either the sovereign is the mother or the father, like in this heterosexual cis matrix that, that uh, Hobbes is working within. In that case, the sovereign then belongs to one commonwealth, the family, and then the broader commonwealth that they are ruler of in the society, in the, in the commonwealth that they are the ruler of and if they have children then they're rulers of two different uh two different groups and we'll t- again th- this is something that will come up with um with Locke in that Locke is a little bit hesitant to naturalize or to extract from a natural submission to parents and to say that this is at all descriptive of how sovereignty should work in the real world where Locke is like you know you have your parents and they they they're trying to guide you a sovereign does something different like a sovereign is not someone who's like i'm putting i'm controlling you <laughs> for your own well-being uh at least well that is all they're doing whereas for parents they're like i'm trying to guide you to like learn and, and develop in the world whereas yeah for Locke that does not, <laughs> you can't just extract one from the other anyways so these are the sovereign's prerogatives. You know they can't be put to death. They decide all the judges, magistrates, and all that. Now, of course, he's clear that all of these prerogatives, these elements of sovereignty of the commonwealth, refer only to those cases where people have consented to establishing the sovereign uh, authority in this commonwealth. It doesn't doesn't work when people are forced into it. Then of course they aren't going to consent to this. And then, but like. He says these are natural laws of sovereignty. And so what if someone or a group was not aware of like all the rules or, or anything before consenting and surely uh, like the first... It just it, There's so many problems, but whatever. David, just chill out, David. Chill. And that puts us here into chapter 19. Of the several kinds of commonwealths by institution and of succession to the sovereign power. So by institution, remember, that's by consent. You aren't being forced into it or you aren't just like born into it. So there are three kinds. There's monarchy, aristocracy, or democracy. Now, it's super important to say that he is not appreciating one over the other. You kind of get the sense that he likes monarchies because they limit the number of people who can have an impact on how society works but he's super clear that there is no none of these is better than any of the others and a lot of people get this wrong because you know whenever i do this stuff I'm, I, I research like what do the what do scholars say about this because like this isn't my field of expertise so i you know i always refer to what other you know actually established people say and you'll find so many cases where like where people are going to say that Hobbes prefers monarchies to democracies and aristocracies and actually tries to justify them. And while I think that you can sense that Hobbes does prefer monarchy, it's not clear. And he just blatantly says that none of these are better than any of the other. So keep that in your mind here when talking about this. He likes all of them, as long as people have consented to them. He thinks they all work. They're all fine. So those who are discontent under each of these, may call each a different name. Like, for example, if someone is upset underneath a monarchy, they'll call it tyranny. If they are set upset underneath uh, an aristocracy, they're going to call it ol- oligarchy. Or if they are upset under democracy, they might call it anarchy. And he's like, these people, you know, they're just uh, you know, whatever, probably the social justice warriors, whatever they just you just kick them out like they They don't know how to actually submit to the rules. They should just like be happy for what they have, blah, 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 whatever boomer catnip you want to throw in this direction. Uh, but it, you know, it's it's certainly interesting. And, it, and it's really interesting, too, if you consider um, dystopian novels and dystopian stories, because they all start like 1984, Brave New World, where it's a utopia. Everyone's super happy. And then there's that one person who's like, oh, maybe things aren't so great. And then suddenly it's like, oh, maybe things aren't so great. So between aristocracy, democracy, monarchy, we, we, find, we don't find differences in aptitude. We only find really differences. We find differences in aptitude, sorry, and we don't really find differences in power at all. We're under a monarchy an individual's well-being is maximized as their subject's well-being is, ma- is maximized. In the case of an oligopoly or oh God, aristocracy, those people all have the same power as, like, one monarch would under, uh, within another system. The point is that they are all examples of sovereignty. The sovereign is what is universal among these three systems. Sovereign power is either held by an elected official, by a monarch, or by a group of people, like an aristocracy. The power is the same. Now, of these, like, you kind of get the sense that Hobbes prefers a monarchy because rule isn't divided among people who may disagree about things and cast the people back into the state into a state of war. He thinks that at least he hints that it's better if there's just one ruler and they aren't like asking for opinions from all of the social body from many different counselors and and so on. Again, with that being said, he thinks they are all valid and good. Whenever assemblies or counselors are involved, there's a risk of this happening of like of chaos and chewing, even under a monarchy. Because if a monarch employs many different counselors to give advice, then you're just going to enter a state of war again, because you're going to have different people agreeing about things differently. You might open up possible uh, avenues for retaliation. People might conspire, might perform a coup against those in power to obtain power themselves. So there are certain risks there. So in cases where the sovereign monarch must leave their post, it is best that they choose who succeeds, who takes over for them while they're gone. Where if they die unexpectedly, for example, then the next sovereign chosen as per custom will likely be one of their children. And Hobbes is like, it's funny, Hobbes is like, either the boy or the girl. If there's a boy or a girl, it doesn't matter. But it should be the boy because they're, in Hobbes' words, naturally fitter than women for actions of labor and danger. And I'm like, well, wasn't the point of the Commonwealth at all so that people wouldn't have to worry about that? In what world does it matter if a so- it, whether a sovereign is the strongest for labor and danger? Like, if you look at the presidents of the United States, like, I, historically, most of them probably wouldn't win and fight with, like, the best boxer, probably. They wouldn't. So, like, it's never been about that. It's never, we, how many, how long has it been since anyone has ever elected someone on the basis of their being physically strong? Like, what? What? It just, it's moments like these, like, okay, we're confronting just sexism, Right? But also it's just contradictory to his own argument in that the commonwealth is supposed to be the system is supposed to be like a, a submission to something that permits us to get away from natural strength from just fighting for resources so that we can employ our reason look for causes behind events maybe he should have read more philosophy to help with his own consistencies in his thinking but if if, if like a sovereign doesn't have a child then the next closest relative should take over and like even this why what, what's the deal with blood relation here what, what does this have anything to do with someone's ability to govern if we choose an elected official under a democracy and they die why should it go to their brother or cousin or something like that doesn't make any sense at all Doesn't make any sense because the people haven't consented to that. If anything, there should be another election, or the same process should be repeated again to choose who the monarch should be. Right? I mean, wouldn't that wouldn't that be the thing? It's not like the people consented to have their monarch just suddenly die of a heart attack or something, or anything else. Like, you have to, we have to reconvene and figure this out. We're not going to give it to some bloke who's living down the street and like, all right, Bill, (laughs) step into the role. Anyways, that puts us here into chapter 20 of Dominion, Paternal, and Despotical. So now he considers the Commonwealth by acquisition or by force. So here he's moving away from considering those Commonwealths where people have submitted and consented to it. That is the Commonwealth by um, institution. Here he's considering the Commonwealth by acquisition. So here... People submit by fear. They're scared. So like prisoners of war or people who've been uh, colonized, people who've been conquered in war who weren't necessarily fighting, for example. They will submit because they're scared, right? There's this new authority that's come in, taken all of their land probably and people like they have nowhere else to turn. Now in both cases, under both, Commonwealth by Institution and Commonwealth by Acquisition, he thinks that rights and consequences of sovereignty are the same in both. Now, Commonwealth by Acquisition can assume two different forms. There's either the paternal one through paternal power, where you're just born into it, as we talked about before, but then there's cases where people are brought into a Commonwealth by conquest and in that case they are put under despotical power now no matter what for Hobbes we are always subject to paternal power we're born into a a situation where there are caretakers who are giving us rules and and everything otherwise we'd be screwed like we're humans we can't survive as babies on our own we're not like sea turtles and trying to get to the ocean like we, we we need to be cared for and whoever those people are are ruling over us and then despotical power, like I said, is to be distinguished from it in that these are uh, this is a situation in which someone has showed up and decided they are going to rule over you. So paternal or parental power, it, it, it's fundamentally tricky because, as per Hobbes's view, there can't be two sovereigns. Like you can't see both your parents and your actual sovereign as the same thing because then the sovereign power would be split up then it would be a state of war all over again or moreover within the family itself between two parents you cannot have two sovereigns because then it's you know you'll just whatever one parent says if it conflicts with another then the child will be confused so then he's like well it should be the father of course of course of course the father has ultimate authority the father is the true sovereign so power should really be held by the father Unless in a society where women rule, or in a state of nature where father is not always known, whereas the mother, the mother always knows their children, right? Because they give birth to them. Whereas maybe the father, who who knows who the father who the father is, um, a, ch- a child is is hers when she gives birth to it. Like she knows that. Now Locke has a different idea. I'll talk about that more later. But against Locke, uh, Hobbes suggests that. He that hath dominion over the child hath dominion also over the children of the child, and so on. Locke is like, doesn't buy any of that. Locke is like, no, when you're born, you're free. Like, you have liberty. You're not, you're not under the dominion of your great-great-great-grandparents. Like, that's absurd for Locke. Like, no one, no one thinks that, and no one exercises that. It's just wild. So children consent to this through natural the natural order of things. Hence, it resembles the commonwealth by institution. Like it's just a mirror of the very commonwealth that we submit to by the order of things. Now, this is also against Locke because Hobbes turns to scripture to justify sovereign power over people like uh, Moses, God, Saul, David, and parents over children. Now, if Locke kind of opposes this in his first treatise of government, his whole thing there is to explain why some some other thinker named Filmer is totally wrong. Because Filmer is like makes the case that in the Bible there are cases where fathers rule sons, and therefore this is justification why people are not free, because you're born into that and then you submit to a commonwealth and submit to a sovereign that keeps this trend going of you just being subordinate to someone else's power. So therefore, no one is free. Whereas John Locke says, no, you are free. That's the most important thing. And if anything, sovereignty has to embrace that freedom, cultivate it, and really foster it. So as I said before, despotic power, unlike paternal power, refers to domination over a vanquished people, people who've been defeated in war, who've been, who've been taken over, and who have capitulated. They're like, okay. Like, they aren't people still fighting or running away. The people who are like, okay, you win. We'll follow your rules. And here he he justifies that people can be entered into slavery because they can, you know, their lives are worthless and so on. But he also leaves room to say that the sovereign, for those people who do submit, the sovereign has an obligation to defend them. Like, they are now part of their kingdom and the same rules apply. The sovereign has a duty to protect them. And that puts us here into chapter 21 of the liberty of subjects. So liberty, as we said much earlier, is the absence of restraint or impediment in fulfilling desired actions. And when you enter into a commonwealth, what you are saying is that you're giving, getting rid of some of your liberties in order to better enjoy the remaining ones. Because when you live in a state of nature, or state of war, you have all the liberty in the world, but so does everyone else. And they might take your stuff and they might hurt you. But when you enter into a society, you say, okay, I'm not going to do any of that anymore. And no one's going to do it to me. So I'm going to be free to do all the remaining, all my remaining liberties. So fear and liberty here go hand in hand. We fear the outcome of breaking laws that would take away our freedom with imprisonment. So when we live within a commonwealth, we are still a little bit scared. We've left the state of nature, which was like ultimate fear, always scared that someone might stab us or whatever, and we've entered into a commonwealth, a society, where we are scared of what might happen if we break the rules, and that keeps us in order and it keeps everyone else in order. How effective this actually is, though, I mean, again, there's been no society where there's been no crime, right? You know, crime is just part of the world at least according to how laws have been established. So I'd, again, I don't know what kind of image this this guy has of the law. You know, he's probably just hanging out with his rich buddies. Probably thinks like, yeah, everyone's all good. No one steals or does anything wrong. Or there's no like impoverishment to force people to do things that like, are as though they would be in the state of nature as he describes it. But in any case, moving on. Necessity and liberty here go hand in hand as well because we are not truly free. Rather, we are determined by God's will. So we are like absolutely always, even before we enter into a commonwealth, like we are subject to God's will. Another question worth asking though, if he submits to this you know, Christian doctrine, we have to ask like, how much room really is there for free will? Because if God knows everything, are we really free? If God knows what's going to happen, are we really free or has it been de- determined in advance and we're just following God's plan? So therefore, is anyone really accountable for what they do? Well, unless God, of course, legislated there'd be free will and God doesn't know what's going to happen. And then it's like, okay, well, how smart is God if God doesn't know what's going to happen? If God only knows what's like what has happened or what's happening now. So simply, under a commonwealth, liberty is limited by sovereign's rules, laws and power so there are exceptions of course and there are exceptions to sovereign rule as as like he's already established so for one a sovereign cannot force someone to injure themselves like that would go against one of the laws of nature they cannot force someone to implicate themselves in a crime either so a sovereign can still put to death but cannot force someone to act against their natural propensity for self-preservation which is interesting so the sovereign for Hobbes can execute somebody and be totally justified in it, but the sovereign cannot force someone to execute themselves. And I mean, it, it's one of those things to me, at least it makes sense. But when confronting it, I'm like, what really is the difference though? If the outcome is the same, you know, I, I'll leave that up to you. Tell me, tell me what you think. So people also may not defend someone from their sovereign. So you can't just, like, you you can't defend someone else from, like, the sovereign's authority. Simply, people have liberty where no laws have dictated proper conduct. So, you know, if you're wondering, am I allowed to do this or not, you can look at the law books. If the law books have no rules about it, then it's just free free game for Hobbes. They are at liberty while uh, respecting established laws. Everything else, they can do whatever they want. So submission to sovereign lasts as long as sovereignty is able to provide protection. The moment the sovereign and the commonwealth disintegrates, and there's no longer that promise of protection and liberty, then people aren't going to submit to it anymore. And Hobbes thinks they have no obligation to submit to it because what are they getting from it? And in cases where a sovereign, if your own sovereign has been defeated by another, then you belong to that new sovereign. Then you are their subject. And that puts us here into chapter 22 of systems, subject, political, uh, of systems, subject, political, and private. So within the Commonwealth, there can also be public and private systems and organizations that assume essential roles of the Commonwealth. And they act like organs in the body. So unlike the sovereign that just follows a body's, nat- body's natural laws, these other systems need written, w- written laws and, and, and rules in order to actually function. And this refers to the body politic, which is a system uh, in the commonwealth. And so an example of the body politic are doctors in a hospital. And this might conflict with how some people imagine the body politic. This is how he's talking about it. Where the body politic, there can be a body politic of merchants in a corporation. And they, like a hospital or medical system will set up its own laws and everything, its own rules, its own edicts and prescriptions within a commonwealth. And so will a corporation and so will, you know, insert any other example that you want that would fit that criterion of a kind of like organ of the commonwealth. You know, a necessary part of it in order to protect people, in order to keep people safe or manage their money or whatever, or their health, uh, that falls outside of the Commonwealth's view because likely you are not electing someone because they're a good doctor and then being like, this is going to be the health state or a state that's purely like, oh, we are going to absolutely command the art of giving health and that's going to be our only job. This is more a responsibility of a specific sector of the Commonwealth. So they can adopt similar structures as the Commonwealth and be under monarchical, aristocratic, or democratic rule like uh, a hospital board or medical board might be democratically elected or there might be like a single figurehead, like a president or something. Uh, and they're ultimately subject to sovereign authority. So these people then are going to ultimately, although they kind of command others or they occupy an important place in uh, providing advice for others or guiding people in some way, they are ultimately subject to the sovereign's authority. So unlike sovereignty, though, people can justly dissent against these entities. Like they can fight against a corporation or against medical system or whatever, or a school system, you know, insert any institution you really want here, if they feel like they're acting unjustly. They can't do so, remember, against a sovereign. But because these are not sovereign figures, they just mirror sovereignty at a lower level, at a smaller, smaller level, then they can be challenged. So judgment of body politic will ultimately be deferred to the sovereign. If the people are upset with it, the sovereign must be like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Maybe this, this body politic maybe this entity is not actually doing so well for the people so there is always a risk with body politics gaining too much power though like a corporation and sowing distrust of the sovereign as uh, like they might they might try to conspire against the sovereign like if a corporation gets too strong for example so they should then be regulated though it he, do, he doesn't really elaborate on like how much or who will regulate them, just that they should be regulated, which is, I mean, I, I'm not sure what to make of that because it certainly flies in the face of Adam Smith's ideas of the free market. But in any case, that puts us into chapter 23, the last one we'll cover today before moving into episode four next time. So chapter 23 of the Public Ministers of Sovereign Power. Public ministers are administrators of political society and fulfill the sovereign's duties. So there can be cases where the heir is a child and needs a public minister to hold reins until they come of age. Like if a sovereign dies and their child is taking up the mantle and their child is six years old, there might need to be other people keeping, keeping things in order until the child uh, turns 18 or however old they've decided the child needs to be. Uh, So they can also be protectors, governors, viceroys that act as sovereigns, nerves, and tendons that move political bodies' limbs. So there are also those who collect taxes, manage funds. These are all people totally responsible for um, keeping the commonwealth functioning and moving, who protect the public, who teach the public. Then there are judges who are responsible for maintaining law and order, in society he elaborates as well on his earlier point that a judge must be impartial lest the new judge be sought and he qualifies this can only be done once though like if a new judge is sought in a case where like the judge is seen as being impartial then that that's the end of it like then one of the parties can't be like oh well this judge is also biased and you just have an endless forever chain at some point uh it, it needs to end and hobbes is like you can do it once You can change the judge once, and then that's it. Then, in addition to all this, there are ambassadors who, like, they are also public ministers. Uh, They act on behalf of the public, not on behalf of the sovereign's private interests and relationships, insofar as the sovereign is also representing the public. Like, an ambassador is not acting on, like, making sure that the sovereign is going to get their best meals when they visit another country or something or like establishing diplomatic ties with countries because the sovereign wants to have a new vacation home in another country. I mean, ambassadors have to be working with the public interest in mind at the behest of the sovereign, who is the embodiment of the public interest of the public, uh, the public's desire, the people's desire. And yeah, that'll push us here into chapter 24, which we'll take up next time. And we'll cover that all the way to the end of part two. And then the final episode that I'll do, episode five, will cover both chapters, chapters, parts three and four, you know, of the Christian, Christian Commonwealth and of the Kingdom of Darkness. And yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, anything I got wrong, you know, let me know. Let me know if you agree. Do you buy it? Are you on Hobbes' side? What parts of the argument are strong? What are, what are the weaker ones? I'd really love to hear what you have to say. Uh, Yeah, follow me in anything else, tell your friends, and on that note, take care.